The Twenty-One Balloons, Chapter 2, A Hero's Welcome is Prepared. Do you remember what happened in last episode? Professor Sherman got on a train headed towards San Francisco. Now, Chapter 2. While the rest of the world calmed down a bit, knowing there would be no further news from Professor Sherman until after five full days it would take him to cross the country by presidential train, In those five days, San Francisco became wild with excitement. There have been many instances of hometown giving its returning hero a rousing welcome, but never before had a returning hero placed so much attention on his hometown. San Francisco's reaction to this was to prepare for Professor Sherman the most fabulous celebration imaginable. Professor Sherman was a balloonist. San Francisco went balloon crazy. The railroad station was swathed in bunting, flags, and miniature balloons. The avenue from the railroad station to the Western American Explorers Club was lined with triumphant Corinthian columns, each surmounted by a brace of bright-colored miniature balloons. Ladies revived the balloon fashions and dresses which had been popular in France a hundred years before. Fat ladies gave up their diets, and everybody talked about that round look. Balloons were the decorative scheme in all stores. In a fruit and vegetable store, for example, honeydew melons with a quart box of strawberries hanging from them by numerous strings were made to resemble ascension balloons and hung from the ceiling next to watermelon dirigibles and summer squash blimps. The mayor of San Francisco ordered and had the city pay for 1,000 miniature balloons to be used to decorate the avenue from the station to the club and the municipal buildings. He gave the contract for this big job to the Higgins Balloon Factory, thus honoring the work which had built Professor Sherman's original giant balloon. These miniature balloons were made of silk, filled with hydrogen, and had a lifting pull of 60 pounds each. It was an all-out effort of hard day and night work. The Higgins Factory finished the balloons in two and a half days. They were beautiful, painted many colors, and shaped exactly like Professor Sherman's balloon, though considerably smaller. By noon of the third day, they were being attached to the various municipal buildings and along the avenue and looked very fine indeed. The workmen who were attaching the balloons were followed wherever they went by bands of curious children who asked many questions about the balloons, particularly concerning what would be done with them after the parade. When the workmen had finished, one boy carefully watched them walk off down the road, then climbed up on the roof of the post office, untied a balloon, and excitedly brought it down to the street. The boy weighed about 75 pounds. The balloon had a lifting pull of 60 pounds. He wasn't strong enough to play around with it very much. As a matter of a fact, he seemed to be able to do, all he seemed to be able to do was walk around, stretched quite tall on his tiptoes with his hands above his head. Then he got an idea. He tied the end of the rope around his waist, ran down the street with the wind, and jumped as high as he could in the air. The balloon carried him about the height of a second-story window, and he floated down the street for half a block. (laughs) This was fun. He tried it again. This time, with a little more wind and a slightly bigger jump, he reached the height of a third-story window and flew a whole block. 
Of course, about 20 children chased him down the street, all yelling and wanting to make a few leaps themselves. He jumped down a few more blocks, and by this time his arms were tired and his waist was sore, so he had to take a rest. He decided to let his younger brother have it next. His younger brother, though, was quite a bit smaller and weighed about 58 pounds. He grabbed the balloon and his brother wrapped the end of the rope around his middle, took a little jump, and sailed off very slowly down the block. He's better than you are, yelled one of the boys. Look, he's four stories high on his second block. Fortunately, there was a church at the end of the street, or the younger brother's leap may have turned out to be altogether too big. He managed to wrap his legs around the very top of the steeple, untie the balloon, which shot upward into the skies, and grab the steeple with his arms and his legs and hang on as tightly as he could. He was yelling and screaming for dear life. Ten minutes later, the fire department rescued the young boy, and the children decided to give up the ballooning leap game. The fire department, by the way, was pretty busy all night. Sparks from chimneys would land on the small balloons along the triumphant avenue to the Explorers Club, causing them to blow up. There were no actual house fires. The balloons would flare up and disappear immediately, leaving no trace or fire. The resulting huge blazing flashes of light scared the people who lived nearby buildings so much that they complained about it to the mayor. The mayor ordered the entire fire department to station all of its trucks and engines along the avenue and keep a sharp lookout all night. This reassured the people who lived near the decorated buildings, and they gradually, family by family, went to bed and eventually to sleep. What was, in a way, the funniest incident resulted from the mayor's plan to decorate parts of San Francisco with the balloons caused considerable excitement some 200 miles away. It started in San Francisco. The mayor ordered workmen to decorate the cupola of the Western American Explorers Club with 10 alternating red and white balloons around its base and one larger blue balloon with white stars attached at its very top. The cupola of the club was an unusual piece of architecture. It wasn't actually in the original plan for the building. It was shaped like the upper half of the world from the equator at its base to the North Pole at the peak. There was a flagpole at this pinnacle from which waved the American flag above and the Western American Explorers Club banner directly underneath. Maps of North America, Europe, maps of everything north of the equator were painted with care. They were painted with care in gold and blue paint on the cupola. This unusually cupola was made of wood and had been firmly attached to the building 23 years after the building was completed. It was added with reverence and ceremony, and it symbolized the club's greatest ambition to furnish the first expedition to plant the American flag on the heretofore unexplored North Pole. Ten miniature balloons around the base of the cupola had a combined lifting pole of 600 pounds. The larger balloon attached to its top had a lifting pull of 300 pounds. This made a total strain of 900 pounds. The cupola weighed a little over 400. Nothing unusual happened at first, but during the night, as the winds gently tossed the balloons back and forth, the cupola started to loosen somewhat, like a tooth does. 
As the night wore on, it became looser and looser, and at 1.29 o'clock in the morning, it gently rose from its perch on the Explorers Club and, dropping bits of plaster, spikes, rivets, etc., flew off eastward over the city. It gained altitude and crossed mountaintops without incident. It started losing altitude only after it had a nice flight of four and a half hours and landed silently and gracefully in a peaceful little Indian reservation, which was situated in a snug valley between two huge mountains. As dawn came up and daylight began to appear in this valley, the Indians arose, walked out of their tents, and beating their chests, took deep breaths of fresh air. But what was this? Right in the middle of the reservation, lined up with the other tents, was what appeared to be a small planet sunk in the ground, and surrounded by smaller planets. Now, what do you suppose they did? Did they back away trembling with fear? No. Did they shriek with fright? No. Did they beat up the medicine man? No. They gave the cupola an appraising look. Then one of them said, Huh. Dumb men decorate the Explorers Club of San Francisco with too many balloons. Get the hatchet. Cut a door in the United States between New York and San Francisco. This will make a lovely new house. When the mayor gave the miniature balloon contract to the Higgins Balloon Factory, he was rewarding a company which was near to Professor Sherman's heart. This was a nice idea. However, the Tomes Aeronautical Studios were where all the San Francisco arrivals to the Higgins Factory weren't at all pleased by his decision. Ah, the Tomes Aeronautical Studios which were the rivals to the Higgins factory. They were not pleased with this decision. At a time when San Francisco was balloon crazy, they found themselves to be sadly neglected. Something has to be done, something unusual in the balloon line, said Joseph Tomes, the company's president. He immediately called a conference. The directors thought hard, and did much scratching of their heads, and made many ridiculous suggestions, but were unable to think of any satisfactory ideas on such short notice. Somebody suggested they look through their file of patents for some discarded invention of an earlier day. This seemed a good idea at such a pressing moment. After much study of all sorts of rare balloon innovations, they found a suggestion in a pocket of the files marked, Ideas to be Considered. It quoted Benjamin Franklin in 1789, a year before he died. He was too sick at the time to stand the shocks and bumps of any form of travel. I wish I had brought with me from France a balloon sufficiently large to raise me from the ground. In my milady, it would be the most easy carriage for me, being led by a string held by a man walking on the ground. Ah! <gasps> That's it, shouted Joseph Tomes. Professor Sherman is sick. We shall build him a balloon carriage to carry him in comfort from the railroad station to the Explorers Club. The directors agreed, and here was a wonderful idea. However, it lacks grace, and it isn't imposing enough, suggested one of the directors. And besides, the mayor would never approve of a carriage in which there was no seat for him. The mayor could be the man who walks on the ground and pulls the strings, said Joseph Tomes, president of Tomes Aeronautical Studios. 
I do believe, the other director argued, that if we are to put on any sort of show in this balloon-conscious parade, we shall have to do something more spectacular than that. I'm only thinking out loud, he said. But do you, what do you think of this? We'll take a large, deep leather couch, big enough to accommodate both the professor and the mayor. We'll raise this just off the ground with two of our number three B touring balloons. To this comfortable floating couch, we will harness three horses in a single file. A postillion in a balloonist's suit will ride the front horse, thus directing our balloon buggy down the boulevard to the Explorers Club. Ah, that's it. A wonderful idea and won't take any time to build. We have the balloons in stock and the couch in my office will do nicely. He then instructed one of the directors to hire the horses and arrange some sort of steady harnessing so that the couch wouldn't tip. He instructed another to have two of the number 3B touring balloons filled with hydrogen and have the words, Well done, Professor Sherman, painted on them. This fabulous balloon buggy should be ready by four this afternoon and I shall drive it and I shall drive in it at that time with the director who invented it to the city hall where we will demonstrate it to the mayor. While this excitement and hard work was going on at the Tome, at the Tome Studios, the rest of San Francisco was beginning to calm down. This was September 22nd, the day before Professor Sherman was expected. San Francisco was all ready. The decorations were installed. The cupola of the Explorers Club had mysteriously disappeared somewhere and the fire department was getting ready to begin its second sleepless night protecting the houses along the avenue from exploding balloons. The people were getting quite restless and impatient. Their first enthusiasm was wearing off. They began wondering whether or not Professor Sherman was really worth all this bother and excitement. They actually, All they actually knew about him was that he wouldn't tell his story anywhere except in San Francisco. This was enough to make the world extremely curious, but was it enough to make Professor Sherman a hero? The people were beginning to lose interest. Some even decided they, would, they wouldn't bother to push their way through the crowds on the avenue to see him as he drove from the station to the club. Then a young boy came to the professor's rescue. He had just finished reading an extraordinary account of a trip by some intrepid adventurers. This trip had caused considerable stir, so much that a well-known author of the Times had written a book about it, calling it Around the World in 80 Days. The young boy started thinking about Professor Sherman's voyage. He had left San Francisco at 3 o'clock on August 15th. He was later picked up with 20 balloons in the Atlantic. That means he must have flown over parts of Asia and most of Europe, too. He was rescued by a freighter, taken to New York, and now being rushed from New York to his starting point, San Francisco, in the presidential train. If he arrives at three o'clock on time at the station in San Francisco, the little boy reasoned, he will have traveled around the world in 40 days and cut the world record in half. Everybody recognized the logic in this, and new interest in the professor spread all over San Francisco. Whether other secrets he was saving for San Francisco, the fact remained was 
the fact remained that a record of long-standing around the world in 80 days was to be divisively beaten by Professor William Waterman Sherman of the Western American Explorers Club when he arrived the following day. At four o'clock, back in the Tomes Balloon Studios, the balloon buggy was completed, and Joseph Tomes and his enterprising director climbed into the leather couch. A messenger boy was sent ahead to tell Mayor to stand on his balcony and sit at hall at City Hall to see the arrival of this magnificent and most comfortable carriage. Joseph Tomes told the pavilion to drive on. Then we're off, he shouted and nervously sat back. The invention worked like a dream. The usual bumps you feel in carriages just didn't exist. Joseph Tomes and the director took turns patting each other on the back. We'll sell a million of these, ha ha ha, said Joseph Tomes. As they approached City Hall, Joseph Tomes and the directors leaned way back in the couch and crossed their legs to show how completely at ease and comfortable they were. Joseph Tomes lit a cigar. This was a great mistake. As the balloon buggy floated up in front of City Hall, a spark from Joseph Tome's cigar lit one of the many balloons. There was a tremendous explosion, a blinding flash, and Joseph Tomes and the director fell rudely on their behinds and did backward somersaults onto the pavement. Please, oh, gentlemen, said the mayor angrily, on this of all days, I cannot waste my time with acrobatics. Joseph Tomes and the director sadly walked back to the balloon factory as the three horses, scared by the explosion, carried the postillion and dragged the couch on a wild gallop through the city streets. There were no further incidents to spoil the professor's celebration. The following morning, there were still 929 of the original thousand miniature balloons. A huge crowd... <coughs> Excuse me. A huge crowd gathered early along each side of the Avenue of Triumph. The mayor gave final instructions to the official welcoming committee. He asked them to wear derby hats instead of their usual silk hats and polka dot ties instead of the usual gray ascots. This is to be keeping with the balloon motif. At exactly 2.56 o'clock in the afternoon of the 23rd of September, a presidential train was sighted in the distance, and a gigantic cheer of welcome was heard from the people of San Francisco. Next, we will read Chapter 3, A Description of the Globe.